we meet with the Ocells fairly regularly yet. Uh, so I'm glad that I finally get an opportunity to be here. Uh, why don't we pray before we get started? Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as a church. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have provided the body of Christ, that we are not on our own, but that you have given us community. I pray that you would help us as we look into your word, that we would know you better. Encourage us, convict us where we need it. Help us, please, to love you, to honor you better as a result of our time here together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I did leave my water bottle over here, so I'm going to take a quick little jaunt back this way. So uh, as mentioned, I work with Training Leaders International. Uh, my, uh, my journey to working with uh, pastors overseas um, my <clears throat> started in Hawaii of all places. So Sarah and I were living in Hawaii, a young married couple, uh, and we went on a short-term missions trip uh, to a small country in eastern Africa called Malawi. And while we were there, I saw firsthand for the first time what it's like for people who are trying to be pastors but yet don't have any training. We showed up there to visit an orphanage, but a local pastor who was connected with that orphanage uh, asked my pastor to come do some kind of pastor's training something. We just need help learning about the Bible. And I thought that was, that was odd at best. Here's a guy you've never met, you have no idea who he is, and yet you think that he has something that uh, he can train you guys with. Um, so it was then that I finally realized that uh, when you go overseas, theological training is just not easy to come by. So here in the West, you just go to seminary like Bethel because it's close to your house. It's near where you live. Uh, or it's a denomination that you're familiar with. Uh, you go overseas, and there's going to be a fair amount of difficulty getting any kind of training whatsoever. So became so convinced that this was necessary that Sarah and I moved from Hawaii to Minnesota so that I could attend Bethel Seminary. Um, fast forward a little bit, I just finished a PhD in Old Testament, uh, and so now I have the opportunity to serve pastors overseas full-time by going overseas and providing the training that they need to do the work that they've been called to do. So I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like for somebody like Kevin to plant a church having never received any kind of theological training whatsoever. So that's the reason that we do what we do. Uh, so that's my full-time job. I live here in Fridley uh, with my wife and our four kids. And I travel frequently overseas, typically five or six times internationally each year to do uh, one or two-week training sessions with pastors. So that's a little bit about who I am and why I'm here uh, living in this area and how I got connected to Kevin. So it was at Bethel Seminary that we met uh, and became good friends. So as we start looking at, uh, at our text for today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 7 
and verses 1 through 24. So we're continuing the series in John. Uh, I want to start out, I'll read each section of text as we go through it, but I wanted to start out uh, just with a little story. So on a Sunday night after dinner, Jenny asked her children to start cleaning up from dinner while she changed the baby's diaper and her husband went out to go mow the lawn. So the children got up, obediently started to do the tasks that they were asked to do. Joe was taking dishes out of the dishwasher, putting them away. Mary was starting to wash the pots and pans in the sink while Nancy started clearing the table. Having triumphed over the baby's greatest protests, Jenny comes back with a clean baby in hand, only to discover Nancy lying on the floor and crying, while Joe stepped over her on his way to put away a stack of plates. Rushing over to the child, Jenny asked, what happened? Joe piped up and said, oh, she slipped on some soapy water that splashed out of the sink and she fell down. Mary then chimed in and said, oh, some water sloshed out of the sink when I was washing the big spaghetti pot. Later that night, after Nancy's broken arm had been set and put into a cast, Jenny sat down with Joe and Mary and asked them, children, why did you not help your sister when she fell? Joe responded first. And Joe said, well, I was obeying your command to put the clean dishes away. You never said anything about helping my sister. <clears throat> I was just trying to do what you told me to do. I was being obedient. A little taken aback, Jenny turned towards Mary, who then said, I wanted to make sure that I got all the dishes washed so that I could get my one dollar for having done all my work. I did not have time to stop and help. So in this little scenario, did Joe and Mary obey their mother's commands? Well, yes, in a technical sense, uh, they did exactly what their mother asked them to do. But, if we ask another question, did Joe and Mary do what their mother wanted them to do? The answer to that question would be a resounding no. Jenny would have much preferred that Joe and Mary stop what they're doing and help their sister. The obedience that they had to the letter of the law did not please their mother, who wanted the children to act not just out of obedience, but out of love love for her and love for their sibling. So as we look at our passage today from the Gospel of John, we will come back to this illustration as we seek to follow John in understanding what it means to judge things rightly. So beginning in verses 1 through 9, uh, we read an interaction that Jesus has between his brothers. So John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because of the Jews. The Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come, 
For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. So the story begins with Jesus avoiding Judea because there were Jews that wanted to kill him. So he was staying in Galilee. So this was well known as we saw in John chapter 5, that there were Jews that were conspiring to want to kill him. Uh, Jesus' brothers were cajoling him about going up to the feast. Uh, They were speaking sarcastically to him, kind of speaking down to him. So Jesus' brothers saw the teaching that Jesus was doing, and seeing that there were crowds that were starting to gather around him, they say to Jesus, Oh, you seem to be wanting to be a public figure. Well, you should go up to the feast. Then all these people that are following you, they'll be able to see you there amongst the temple. They'll be able to see you amongst all the Jewish leaders. So Jesus rebukes them and says that he will not go. He says, my time has not yet come. Well, what does that mean? My time has not yet come. Time for what? Well, he means the time for him to publicly declare who he is. He is not yet ready to make the triumphal entry that we will read about later in the Gospel of John. Uh, The time is always right for Jesus' brothers to go and show themselves in the temple, to show themselves to the people. But that time for Jesus to make this big public declaration has not yet come. And Jesus says that for them to go up to the temple is no big deal because everybody will love them. Everybody else is doing the same thing that Jesus' brothers are doing. But when Jesus goes and when he really declares himself publicly, the world is going to hate him. As he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. So for these reasons, Jesus is not going to go up to the, uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles in order to make his presence known. This idea of go up or go up to the festival means not just physically traveling, but going to show yourself. So it was important that everybody would see you, that the synagogue leaders would see you, your friends, your family, that people would see that you are being an obedient Jew and you are going up to the feast to participate. Jesus was not yet ready to make himself publicly declared in this way. So that's why he says, my time has not yet come. In verse 10 then, we read, however, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. So John is making clear this distinction that going up, again, it's not just physically like walking there. It's this public declaration of, yes, I am here and I am participating. Uh, See me. Uh, Jesus was not yet ready to do that, so he went not publicly, but in secret. So let's then look at uh, verses 10 through 13. So, however, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, 
Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deserves, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So again, everybody knows what the Jews are trying to do. So the Jews are looking for him, and like Jesus' brothers, the Jews do not believe that Jesus is who he say he is. They do not believe in his teaching. And verse 12, we can see once again the main question for the whole Gospel of John. What do you believe about Jesus? Some people said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. We can look again at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, for the purpose that John had in writing this whole gospel account. In that, John says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John records this debate that's happening about the people. Who is Jesus? Is he good? Is he a good teacher? Is he a deceiver? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he really the Messiah? So if you were there at that time, what do you think you would say? Would you be believing in him? Would you be trusting in his teaching? Would you agree with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that this is a deceiver? That is the question that John wants people to be wrestling with as they're reading through his gospel. So let's look at then at verses 14 through 24, and we will see very specifically in this dialogue a contrast. So verse, starting in verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So, we read here a dispute about Jesus' teaching. So the Jews, they marveled at Jesus' knowledge because he had never been formally taught in a synagogue setting. Furthermore, uh, it's highly unusual that uh, somebody would come and start teaching in the temple if they did not have 
someone who was conferring authority on them. So in the Jewish structure, a student would sit underneath a Jewish master, and that master would instruct this student. And the student, once he became uh, educated enough to start teaching, he would teach not on his own authority, but by the authority that was given from the Jewish master. So in this question that the Jews are asking, or in this statement that they're saying, um, how did this man get such learning without having studied? They're not just asking, wow, how could he possibly know so much? They're actually questioning his authority to do this kind of teaching. Who is this guy? And he's not teaching on the authority of the elders, not on the authority of those who have conferred authority to him, but he is teaching on his own. So this would have been very negative uh, at that time. So, so how does Jesus then respond? Verse 16, he said, my teaching is not my own. Okay, so specifically answering, I am not just on my own proclaiming my own ideas. My teaching comes from someone who has authority that has been given to me. He says, it comes from him who sent me. So Jesus responds first by saying, I am not just teaching on my own. My teaching does come from somewhere, from somewhere very authoritative. He doesn't say it specifically here, but in many places he says, my teaching comes from my Father. I do the will of my Father. So he responds in a second way in verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So, again, trying to respond. How do people know if Jesus' teaching is really from God or if it's just his own ideas? So, Jesus says that anyone who seeks to do the will of God will be able to know these things. Well, I think that takes two forms. One of them is that for anyone who is truly seeking God, God is going to answer that person. If you are truly seeking to see God and understand him and know him, God will be faithful and he will show himself to you. Uh, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So that's one way in which it becomes obvious if you are truly following God that you will know if this teaching is from God or if it's just a man teaching his own things. The other form I think this takes is that when a person is really seeking to follow God, it will become clear whether the teaching of the Jews or the teaching of Jesus leads you to love for God, to love for your neighbor. Just as it was obvious that Joe and Mary were not acting out of love for their mother or their sister, it will become obvious whether the legalistic teachings of the Jews would lead you towards loving God and loving others, or does it end up being selfishness and self-righteousness? So, second way that Jesus is saying his teaching is authoritative, 
One, again, is that it doesn't come from his own. It comes from the Father. Second, if anyone truly chooses to do God's will, they will be able to see it and discern it. Going on further then, verse 18. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So here, Jesus is defending his teaching as he is seeking to honor not himself, but to honor the one who sent him. He is seeking to honor his teacher, God the Father. He's not seeking to glorify himself. So this is a third reason that Jesus gives for the authority that he has for teaching. He is not seeking his own honor and glory, but the glory and honor of the Father. This we can see most poignantly at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was gaining no honor for himself. To be beaten within an inch of your life, to be stripped of all your clothing, to be hung in public humiliation and killed in the way that a common criminal is executed, that does not bring honor to oneself. Jesus went to the ultimate end to show honor for someone else, to follow obediently in love all the way to the end, even to death. So Jesus demonstrated through his teaching and through his actions that he was honoring God. In very stark contrast to that, the Jews put Jesus to death in order to keep their positions of authority over the people. They loved having the places of honor. By their teaching and by their actions, we can see that they were not truly seeking to honor God, but they wanted honor for themselves. So those are three ways. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus is here demonstrating that these people, they see themselves as the ones who have the authority to teach about the law. They're the ones that are going to tell people how they should act in accordance with the law. And Jesus is challenging them on the way that they are not actually doing that. They are not acting according to the law. They are conspiring to break the law by murdering Jesus. Jesus has broken no law, and yet they are seeking to put him to death. Their teaching is radically inconsistent with their actions. If they're teaching people follow the law, even in that, they are not being consistent. So if you heard this response by Jesus, you're sitting in the crowd, would you believe it? Would you find it persuasive? Let's keep looking then. So the crowds respond by saying in verse 20, You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? So you are demon-possessed is probably just a phrase that means something like you are crazy. You're out of your mind. Uh, who is trying to kill you? Well, we have just read in chapter 5 a long account of Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath, and then the Jews, being angry about this, wanted to conspire to kill him. Uh, 
it says <clears throat> in several places, uh, even in verse 25 of this chapter, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? It was obvious, yes, people were trying to kill him. And Jesus was calling them out on that hypocrisy. But the crowd, the crowd is not responding to Jesus' teaching. They're saying, you are demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Who is it that would break the law? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? So again, this is referring to the events that are recorded in John chapter 5. Jesus healed a man who had been crippled on the Sabbath. So just as in that instance, so now there is a dispute between Jesus and the Jews about what it means to follow the law of Moses. Jesus says you should be able to heal on the Sabbath. And the Jews say, no, that is a violation of the law. You should not be doing that. So Jesus is responding to this ongoing argument in this way. That Moses commands you to keep the Sabbath holy, to honor the Sabbath. And yet, the Jewish leaders would circumcise a child on the Sabbath. So they're setting aside one part of the law in order to satisfy another. They're not adhering to the Sabbath requirements when they circumcise a child. So if it's important enough to bring a child into the community of God's people through circumcision on the Sabbath, if you're going to set aside the Sabbath for that, how can you possibly say that on the Sabbath you cannot heal a whole person's body how can it possibly be? He's showing them the hypocrisy, not just of their actions, but the inconsistency in their own teaching. So by their own actions, it's clear that they don't believe that the Sabbath law really is this highest and most important of the laws by the way that they make an exception already. So Jesus is, he's incredulous that they would so easily set aside the Sabbath for circumcision but yet they're angry at him for having healed someone on the Sabbath. So even in their attempt to obey the letter in a legalistic way, obey the letter of the law, even in that, they're being inconsistent. So the conclusion of the matter for Jesus is that the Jews need to stop making judgments based on mere outward appearances and make right judgments. He's directly challenging their interpretations of the law and the things that they are teaching the people. So again, if you're sitting there and you're listening to this, how would you respond? Would you believe Jesus, this man who does not have any uh, Jewish leader that is granting him authority, someone who is coming, maybe it looks like he's coming on his own. Would you be persuaded by his argument? So, as we think about that, let's look at this passage as a whole. So again, John is relating a conversation between Jesus and the Jews 
about Jesus' teaching and what it means to actually follow the law. So the big question, again, is whether people reading this gospel will believe in the teachings of Jesus and believe that he really is the Son of God and that through him they can have life. So what does this passage tell us about God's plans and purposes? Well, God's plans and purposes for giving instruction through the Old Testament laws was not to make people follow them as a means of becoming righteous in God's sight. That is what Jesus is teaching. None of us are perfect. None of us can claim that we are perfectly adhering to any set of rules. And in this passage, we're seeing two perspectives on the law. The Jewish leaders were essentially saying, we must adhere to the very letter of the law to the uttermost. God gave the laws, the Jewish leaders would say, and the people must obey them, every jot and every tittle, the smallest marking, the littlest of the laws. And by adhering to these laws, whether they would say this out loud or not, what they're implying is that by adhering to these laws, God is now required to treat us as our righteousness deserves. We have been obeying. We ought to get a reward for our obedience. That's one perspective. Jesus gives an alternate perspective that the laws were given as guidelines for how people should behave in light of their love for God. As Jesus says in Matthew 22 and verses 37 to 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the laws were written to show people how they should love God and how they should love others. So in the story we heard at the beginning, we saw two children who were obedient to the very letter of the law that they were given. Yet they failed to love their mother and their sister. Joe was obedient and felt righteous about his obedience. He did exactly what his mother told him. Mary was doing what she was told in order to get the reward of an allowance for doing the dishes. This kind of self-righteousness and lack of love for others that Jesus is teaching against in this passage, that's the kind of thing he's trying to steer people away from. The laws were given as a means of showing people how it is that they should love God and love others in their historical place and in their historical time. <clears throat> okay, so let's think a little bit more about the teaching of the Jews and the teachings of Jesus. The Jews were requiring a strict adherence to the law as a means of being righteous before God. But what happens when a person's obedience is not perfect? What happens when they sin? So Joe, Joe does a lot of good things, and he obeys his mother, and he obeys his mo mother uh, very consistently and generally very strictly. However, Joe failed to love his sister. So does Joe, do Joe's other good works make that go away? 
all the other things that Joe does that are good and obedient, does that make it go away, the fact that Joe did something that was very callous towards his sister in stepping over her as she was in need of help? Do Mary's attempts at earning a reward make it any less grievous to her sister and her mother that she ignored her sister in her time of need? So piling on good works, even participating in the sacrificial system, does not make one's mistakes go away. It does not make your sins suddenly disappear by doing some other good stuff. And this is one of the things that Jesus is driving at over and over and over again in his ministry. When you fail to perfectly obey the law, you become guilty of sin. And a holy God will not allow sin in his presence. And doing a lifetime's worth of good stuff does not erase someone's sin. So the only way to overcome the separation from God that sin causes is a is by appealing to God's mercy and appealing to his forgiveness. So Jesus, he died in order to take away the punishment that our sins deserve. Do you believe this? In this passage, John is highlighting the contrast between those who trust in Jesus and believe in him and those who do not. Which one are you? So it may be 2,000 years now past the point of these events, but the question is a matter of life and death for you today, for everyone who has come since the coming of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus' teachings are true? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? Are you trusting in him? For people like Mary and people like Joe, Believing in Jesus might look like repenting of their sin of legalism. It might look like repenting of their self-righteousness in trying to earn a reward or in trying to be righteousness unto themselves. Repenting of that and asking simply for forgiveness. It would look like changing the way that they saw obedience changing the way they saw obedience not as a means of uh, producing righteousness or getting a reward like going to heaven. It might look like first loving others, seeking to love God, seeking to love others, and then obeying commands as a means of demonstrating and living out that love. So what does that look like for you? Do you believe that Jesus' teaching truly comes from God? And do you believe that Jesus gives the correct way of understanding the law and how to obey it? Are you seeking to do good things as an outworking of your love for God? As a means of demonstrating love for others? Or do we do good works as a means of justifying themselves? thinking, well, if I do enough good stuff, the scales will tip in the balance in favor of me, and then I'll get the reward of heaven. That's legalism. So how do we know if we're doing things in order to love God or as a means of trying to justify ourselves? Well, there is no easy answer for that, but as we seek God, as we ask him to show us our own hearts, and as we think about our actions, he will give us answers through the Holy Spirit 
to these questions. We can do dishes to the glory of God as a means of loving Him and loving others. We can do dishes to the glory of ourselves as a means of producing righteousness for ourselves and seeking a reward. Simple things like doing the dishes can demonstrate what we actually believe. Let us pray one more time. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us your spirit. We pray that you would help us to see our own hearts. Help us to see how it is that we can love you, how it is that we can love one another. Help us, please, to avoid legalistic tendencies and help us to instead act out of love. It's in Christ's name we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.